come to our attention that a mysterious force is loose somewhere in outer space. Welcome to Talk Tank. the Talk Tank, the official podcast of the LSE Entrepreneur Society, where we delve into the minds of those who think, live, and breathe outside the box. My name is Alki, and I will be your host for today. Today's episode is part of our brand new Artistpreneur series, where we steer clear of conventions and turn to the creative-hearted. We tune into the process, behind the writers, the performers, and the visual storytellers. Do they confront us with reality, or do they allow us to escape from it? Our guest today is Jeff Seiger, the author of best-selling novel Murder in Mykonos. Jeff is a Pittsburgh native who was formerly a Wall Street lawyer and established his own New York City law firm before giving it all up to live and write on the Greek island of Mykonos. His chief inspector, Kaldis series, uses Greece and its vibrant nightlife as a backdrop for tales of wealth, jealousy, corruption, bribery, and of course, murder. Today, Jeff answers the million-dollar question. Why did he decide to leave Wall Street behind? And is it worth it living as a writer if you're making the same amount of money in a lifetime than you would in a year as a lawyer? But I don't want to give too much away. I guess you'll have to stick around to find out. So let's get started. Welcome, Jeff. Thank you so much for joining us today on The Talk Tank. Um, At this point, we will have already introduced you on our intro, but in your own words, give us a short elevator pitch. Who is Jeff? Oh, let's see. How about um, a Milltown kid growing up with Great Depression era parents has thoughts of becoming a creative artist, but goes to college to become a doctor, ends up in law school on his way to Wall Street, achieves great financial success as a name partner in his own law firm, and suddenly decides to walk away from it all. At the peak of his career, to write murder mysteries on a Greek island. How's that? You've taken quite some unique paths in your life. I think it's fair to say you've definitely grabbed the attention of our listeners, but let's take it from the top. Could you tell us the story of where you started and how you got to where you are today? I was born and raised in the uh, Pennsylvania city of Pittsburgh's Milltown days, uh, long before it became the medical and technological uh, behemoth that it now is. Uh, My father and mother both grew up during the uh, Great Depression. My father, in fact, had to quit university uh, in order to help support his family. Uh, Those tough times formed their frame of reference, or I should say frames of reference, which as loving parents, they tried to uh, impose upon their children to give them a better life. In fact, I would guess I could say I was the first to graduate from college from my family because of their ideas. I always had a passion for the arts. Uh, in high school, when I was 14 years old, I won a National Art Award for sculpture. My father praised me, but also suggested I reconsider pursuing that sort of class and focus more on academic subjects that would help me to earn a living. During those same high school years, I, I triggered with writing. I thought perhaps I'd become a writer, but uh, when I fellow member of my high school football team read something in English class. I thought it was William Shakespeare reincarnated and decided there must be a lot of people who can write like that, so I'm not going to do that. <laughs> I just quit. I decided I'd focus on the academics. By the way, it turned out that he was William Shakespeare. His name is John Edgar Wyden. He's one of the leading writers in, the, in life today. Oh, 
So uh, I guess you could say what uh, it confirmed my right, my, my instincts about him. He was that great writer. But it also pointed out something to me that you shouldn't be discouraged from how other people seem to be. you got to march to the beat of your own drum and have confidence in the way you're beating that drum. But that's another story. Uh, by the time I had gone off to college, I decided I was going to be a doctor. No question, I mean a physician. There was no question about it. So when it came down, came time to choose the university, I uh, turned down uh, an invitation from Columbia University in favor of a local college which had a great reputation for getting its students into medical schools. Uh, after all, I, I had no, no reason to consider the, potent, the potential benefits of going to a school like Columbia, which could have other career paths available to you, because I knew at 18 years old precisely what I was going to do. Besides, in the back of my mind, I think there was a little bit of that thought that New York's a pretty big town for a, for, for a, for a mill town kid. But when I was in university, uh, I fell in love with political science, and I decided I would aim for being a university professor. My father appears again mm -hmm. with more practical advice. <laughs> he said, that's a great idea, but what are you going to do to eat? <sighs> so I went to law school. And from there, I went to Wall Street, where I pursued a career in litigation. But I was always interested in doing something other than just that career. Uh, I did pro bono work investigating suicides in New York City jails. I defended protesters during the Vietnam era demonstrations. I was involved in presidential campaigns. I was even asked to run for Congress. Professionally, though, I decided the big Wall Street firm wasn't for me, so I joined some friends who were leaving to form their own firm. And uh, for, three, for three decades there, I, uh, as a named partner, I spent my time there, still doing other things like owning a restaurant and a bar and a, a chic, hot chic bar in, in the then East Village of Manhattan. Then one day, I was back in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, attending an event. An old friend of mine walks over and said, Jeffrey, how you doing? And I said, fine. She said, so I have a question, you know, what, 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 what would you really wish you could be doing right now? And I said, well, you know, things are going pretty well with the law firm, but I always did want to be a writer. And she says, my God, I wanted to be a writer too. Well, we chatted for a bit and uh, I go back home to New York and I get a message from her email. And there it says, it says, once upon a time. And there's a paragraph. So I read it. It's a story. So I write back a paragraph. She writes back. Over the next six months, we'd write a little novella together. One day, and we hadn't spoken, she reaches out to me, <clears throat> calls me as a matter of fact, and said that every other day she and her husband can't wait to see what I'm writing. She said, you are really, really good at this. You should really do this. I said, you know, I thought you were my friend. I'm doing pretty well as a, as a named part of my own law firm. You want, me to, you want me to become a starving writer? Forget about it. So Jeffrey, <laughs> write something. So I actually started to. That's where I began to write. She encouraged me. And I wrote what we call drawer novels. I had a couple of those. Uh, drawer novels, when you write, you think it's the best thing ever done, you stick it in a drawer, and you never see it again. After 9-11, I decided this was the time for me to do what I really felt I wanted to do, which was to write. And so I made the leap. I decided to head off to Mykonos and write about a place I'd know intimately for 20 years at that time. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I should point out that when I made that decision, I did it with the realization that in one year as a lawyer, 
I would likely make more money than I make my entire career as a writer. Oh. Think about that. But I never regretted a moment of that. And I should say, thankfully, it hasn't turned out that way. Um, and uh, I also serendipitously got to achieve something else that I always wanted to do. I wanted to be a university professor, if you recall. My alma mater, Washington Jefferson College, invited me back twice to teach a seminar on mystery writing. So that decision also landed me in satisfying another one of my goals in life. But to touch on something that you mentioned, um, so you said that you made more money in one year as a lawyer than you make as a writer in your entire life. So a lot of students, especially at our university, are following quite a specific predetermined path that they think is going to lead them to financial security and safety in all aspects. But what's your advice to someone who might be considering a creative pursuit such as writing, but worries about the financial stability? I think that what you have to understand, if you're going to go off and do anything that has to do with uh, a creative career, is that it's a sort of, a, of, of something that I've looked upon in uh, what I do and what I do with my life, is that writing is a lousy way to make a living but a wonderful way to make a life. Once you accept that, you can create everything else around it. And sort of what I, what I would suggest is that it's, I'm, I'm a realist, and I think that you have to be looking at things in a realistic way, but you have idealism playing in with it. If you're going to try to become a creative writer or do anything in the arts, you should have a day job that's going to let you make enough money to be able to do, and rather to live, you and your family to live the way you like to live. Because you're not going to be happy if you're struggling all the time. So I think it's important for you to take into account that it's not heresy to become an investment banker or a lawyer or a doctor and also have interest in creative life. It's not. Some of the greatest writers I know had other careers which has enabled them to be able to become the writers that they are, not just because they had the financial wherewithal to sustain themselves, but because they picked up life experiences that they work into their works. So there is no one way to become a great writer. There's no one path. What you have to do is you have to have the fire in the belly to want to do it and the willingness to take risks. But do not go into the creative arts thinking you're going to make money out of it. That is a very bad bet, a very bad bet. Yeah. And because you kind of mentioned a couple of other writers, I was thinking usually the way people think about the work of an author or writer is as a solitary activity. But I've seen that you are quite uh, active, for example, in a blog called Murders Everywhere. And you've been to a lot of festivals and other things in this field. So I was wondering, is there such a thing like a writer's community? Do you interact a lot with other writers and maybe also especially in your niche? which is like murder, mysteries. Oh, there's a huge writer's community. Not just writers, but fans, writers, publishers, editors. It, it, I've never been in a more welcoming community than the mystery writing community. Now, I'm not going to extend that to all writing communities. I won't name which, which communities aren't quite that way. But the, but the crime writing community, <laughs> which incorporates many genres, that's a really supportive group. I mean, really. I've always had this philosophy that you can't really win every award, get every honor. So if anyone's going to get it, have it be one of your friends. So you root for your friends to succeed. I get great pleasure out of seeing a, a friend of mine now is now 
He's just written up. Maybe, they say he made the best crime writer of, our, writer of our century. That's a little bit more than the papers say. And I get a kick out of it because I blog, I, I blurbed his first book. And he's taken off. And I'm so happy. <laughs> Amazing. He's just a wonderful guy. And that's what, that's what, there's a great community there. I write a monthly, a weekly blog, and I have for 10 years now, on something called Murderers Everywhere. And it's comprised of uh, writers from around the world who write about, not about our books, because that would bore everybody, but we write about the places where we are and the experiences that we have there. And through that, we have had people go through there who are some really well-known writers. I also had the honor of serving as uh, a chairperson of a festival called BalcherCon, the country's largest mystery writing convention. It's a fan-driven convention. And that's where you get hundreds of, of, of writers come there. The top writers in the community come there. Why? Because they get to hang out with the fans. It's a joyful thing to be in this community. And everybody from every walk of life is there. So it's hard for me to say that, that there's anything other than a great supportive community among mystery writers. That's a rather long-winded answer to your question, but it's a subject of which I'm really happy to speak. Well, that definitely sounds like it's a quite supportive community. And this leads us into our next section, your passion project, your writing and your books. What defining moment made you realize what you wanted to do? I mean, you've touched on the 9-11 experience, which was seemed like the turning point for you. But was there a point even earlier that you think did plant like a seed in your mind of, oh, I'm actually not quite happy with what I'm doing? And I came to the realization that my life was far more meaningful to me when I was a writer than when I was a lawyer. It just struck me as it was. I found that the only way I could do it was for me to go and live at the place where I wanted to write about. I wanted to write a book that talked about the society, the people, the politics, the place I really treasured, which was Mykonos, and to a larger, a different extent, Greece. Uh, and I felt I could only do it if I were there. Somehow when I went there, we want to talk about the defining moment. I didn't want to get into this, but I will get into this. I knew I wanted to write this book. I had a very dear friend. He was a wonderful jeweler on the island. And um, he was always reluctant about my telling him I was going to write this book about Mykonos. He said, oh, my God, you'll destroy the island. No tourists won't want to come here, which he both know was not true. Uh, I, I, because of my love for him, I didn't want to do anything about it. Well, we had dinner one night. Very late. Jewelers finished their work around midnight, as I'm sure you know, Alki. And so we're, we're having dinner, and, I, and he, he said to me, Jeffrey, write your book. Go ahead and write your book. I, I shouldn't have said what I said to you. So I walked him home to his family, and I went back. That morning, I got a phone call. He'd had a stroke, terrible stroke. And uh, I went up to the uh, hospital to see him, and they were just taking him out, and he looked terrible. He, he was unconscious. He passed away in Athens. On Mykonos, when, a, when a, someone who's going to be buried there returns, his friends meet him at the boat. I was there, of course, and I'm with him, following behind the casket. And the friends carry the casket down past his home and towards the church. Now, I'm not Greek Orthodox, and so I didn't feel I can participate in the service that way. As we get to the church, we're about to go inside. His friends grab me. Say, Jeffy, grab a hold of the casket, carry it into the church. I said, I'm not Orthodox. He said, you were his best friend. That's more important. Talk about tears in your eyes. I brought him in. And as I'm standing there next to the open coffin, I sort of look up at the ceiling. I said, I'll get a key. That helps you. I look up. 
And I swear to God, it's as if the entire story came out as to how I should tell this story. It was as if Tassa were saying to me, Jeffrey, this is the story how you should write it. So when you talk about a defining moment, that was my defining moment on that. And uh, oh, wow. boy, gonna, I'll give you another wow. Five years later, six years later, I, my, it was for my, uh, maybe even seven years, it was for my seventh, it was for my sixth book, Sons of Sparta, which just takes place in the Manian area in the Peloponnesus. I'm delivering a speech in Sparta, New Jersey to a library there. And I'm speaking, and this woman comes over and talks to my wife as I'm finishing up, and I didn't know what was happening. We go out, and my wife says to me, Jeffrey, that woman came over to me and said that she is a psychic. And she says she doesn't say this to people because people think she's crazy, and she doesn't do it to strangers. But as your husband was speaking, I saw this man standing next to him, smiling the whole time, and she described the man. The man that she described was a spitting image of Tassos. That was the guy who's, I mean, you talk about chills. So that's why I think I picked the right course. Definitely. And it's, it's quite evident that you have a deep bond with Greece, but also the Greek people. So talking about your books in Greece, your mystery novels explore some very deep-rooted societal issues like the Greek refugee emergency, the financial crisis, like really serious topics. Why did you decide to explore these deep societal issues within a genre which is typically considered like leisure reading? And do you think that also your background as a lawyer like helped you a lot with that? Oh, yeah. well, I actually learned how to write as a lawyer. I learned how to write as a lawyer, writing affidavits to, to, to marshal facts that would support a legal conclusion, in this case, literary conclusion. So, no, I, writing, I learned as a lawyer. I, I give a lot of credit to that. But as far as why the, the mystery genre, what many people don't recognize is that the purpose of a mystery is to restore order to a fractured society. What I mean by that is you have a horrendous murder or a horrendous event that occurs at the beginning. And it's up to your protagonist or whoever it may be to get an answer to it, to resolve it. And so you have many things to overcome along the way. But ultimately, when you get to the end, there is a resolution. Even in a noir novel, there's resolution for, in some way for the protagonist. So basically, people read mysteries, and it's the, I think it is the number one re, uh, read genre next to romance novels. They read them because they're optimistic. You start off with a world that is as crazy as we have right now, and at the end, there's resolution, <laughs> as, as opposed to our transition over here these days. So that's why I, the genre is very good, and it op it's so open to so many different types of styles. But the bottom line is, it is an optimistic restoration of, of a fractured society to a, to a sensible conclusion. That's why I chose it. And people also talk to you a lot, so I've heard this in one of the past interviews, They refer to you as some sort of prophet because oftentimes you talk about these societal issues before they even happen. And it's quite interesting because I was I was reading a quote uh, in one of your older interviews, where you, a quote from Stalin, where you say... The death of one is a tragedy. The death of millions is a statistic. Exactly. That was the one. Um, and I was thinking, so you wrote that before the whole COVID pandemic and you connected it, I think, to the refugee crisis. But when I read it, I, I thought, wow, this is exactly what is happening right now, where you see people carelessly partying because they say, oh, okay, it's just a statistic. 
So yeah, tell us a bit about your role as a prophet and how, how do you see these problems coming? I honestly don't know how I see it, but it's true. In fact, in the book that's currently out, which is number 10, The Mykonos Mob, it's in paperback, it's called Island of Secrets. In that book, I'm telling the story about an individual who was assassinated in the very first scene. Uh, and I describe how he's assassinated and who assassinated him and where it happened and all that. Two months before the book came out, it's long been written, an article appears in, in, in the Greek magazine, Greek newspapers, about a man who was doing the very same things that my guy was doing, who was assassinated in a place where I said he'd be assassinated by a person of the ethnicity I said it would be, driving a car that I said he would drive. And he was doing, the, as I said, he was doing, and he was connected to the same sort of a, of, a, of a gangland crowd as this guy was. I couldn't believe it. I mean, it was like the newspaper had taken my book and put it out there. That, uh, that, was, that, was, that was just this one. But the number one thing was in my second book, Assassins of Athens, I described an individual who went to university in Athens and never graduated, just hung in there, as you know, you could stay in the university those days without ever graduating, just keep taking courses. He was in his 30s. And what he did is he was organizing students to go to demonstrations to aid certain political parties. And then he ultimately decided he wanted to get power for himself. That book came out five years, and I, and I described essentially what his father's family was like and everything. That book came out five years before, before Tsipras came out with Syriza, but it was as if I had described him. In fact, one writer said, how did I, one viewer said, how did he know about this before the Greeks knew about it? How do I know it? I'll tell you what I think it is. My heart is Greek, but my, my background is, is, doesn't have the, the prejudices and the biases and the views that you have if you're from a country. And so what I do is I'll walk into a room like, and I see there's a shoe on that person's ear. I may not know where that shoe goes, but I know it doesn't belong there. So I point out the fact there's a shoe on your ear. And people say, wow, how did he notice the shoe? To me, it was obvious, but then... Yeah, I think the, the outsider's perspective always sees more. And I, I guess you are, in one hand, an insider because you've been going to Greece for so many years, you're practically local, but you still have enough distance to recognize things that the pride of the Greek people shields them from, maybe. Um, and you mentioned your book, The Mykonos Mob. Actually, we wanted to talk about that. So in that book, you pay tribute to the Me Too movement through some of your characters. Could you tell us a bit more about these characters and how they inspire hashtag Me Too meets the mob, since it's also a very current issue at the moment? Well, uh, I've always believed in having strong female characters. Uh, but the, pri the primary protagonist of my book is Chief Inspector Andreas Kaldis. He's the head of a special crimes unit uh, out of Athens Police Headquarters. In, in the Mykonos Mob, which is the 10th book in the series, Andreas' wife accompanies Andreas to Mykonos. Uh, his wife, Leela, is a, uh, a perceptive, compassionate, and also very talented businesswoman who sort of gave it up to have a family. And now she's off, the children growing up, she's off saying, what can I do with my life now? Over there, she uh, meets up with uh, a woman, a young woman, an American expat, who works as a piano player in a gender-bending Mykonos bar at night and is a finder of stolen goods during the day. Well, her uh, iconoclastic zest for life soon makes her into uh, best friends with, with Leela. Yanni and, and Yanni and Andreas are over there trying to get to the bottom of what looks like it's going to be a, a gang war for control of the, of the island's rackets. Uh, 
And along the way, Leela and Tony come up with an idea how to rescue young girls who are caught up in the exploitative culture of that island. Uh, but this is not the sort of book where the men come charging in to save the damsels in distress. This time they are on their own. And as for how they equip themselves, you have to read the book. <laughs> yes, everyone listening, have a read of the book to find out what ends up happening um, with the two of them. I'm definitely intrigued and I want to read the book as soon as I get a hold of it. It tells exactly where Mykonos is at this day. It, it really is something in that respect. I, I wrote, that's the point of that book. It, it describes where Mykonos is today. It's, each of my books, it's like in five-year segments. There were three books. Murder in Mykonos was the first one. That was, that was the number one best-selling English language book in Greece, I'm proud to say. That was the first one. The fifth book gave it, it was called Mykonos After Midnight, gave a look at it five years later, and now the Mykonos mob is after this rush of, the, of what's happened. It's turned it into a tourist gold mine. It discusses that. Yeah, the island has changed a lot in the past years. Um, regarding research for your books, is it easy to gather information, especially maybe in the beginning uh, when you first came to Mykonos and started writing your first book? How how resistant are people to like sharing their stories? Yeah, just tell us a bit about your experience of gathering research on the island. Well, I had a unique way of gathering research when I first came to the island. I made sure to go to every bar in the island every night. So I'd be out until four, five, six, seven, until dawn in the mornings. And around four o'clock in the morning, people who should know better start to talk and tell you all sorts of things, especially after my first book came out because by then they wanted me to know things. They want to talk to writers. But people who should know better would tell me things. And I, I never, ever disclosed who they are. Or, and I've thankfully forgotten who they are. Uh, so I was able to get this inside information on it. As far as getting information on the island, because of my friendships, people would tell me everything. I knew what was going on. I, I, they would tell me, the intrigues. If I had a question about, well, what happened here? I talked to the former police chief. He'd tell me what happened. So the so I get the inside facts. And the second book came out. People were giving me information, give me facts. And uh, that was called Assassins of Athens. And the person who handled the presentation of my book, he he was a very high up in the then government. And uh, in the course of the uh, presentation, it was delivered at a museum. He said, Jeffrey, I don't know how you were able to come up with the information you came up with, but some of the stuff that you put in there meant you must have been in a room with us when we were discussing it. It couldn't have been it could have been better a compliment than that. People just love to talk about it. Ministers, members of parliament, locals, gangsters. I mean, they, they all, they, they, I'm telling you, gangsters. One person, one night, anyway, I better not tell that story. But... Uh, <laughs> We don't want to get you into any trouble. So, but the people love to talk about it. And they know I'm never going to do anything that's going to compromise them. or say. And I, the one thing I do in all my writing, it's a really careful thing. I don't take cheap shots. I tell it like it is. My goal is to tell, I give a fast-paced, entertaining read that touches upon something that I think is interesting beyond what is interesting to Greeks. But I don't take cheap shots. If you do that in, any, in anything you do in your life, even as an entrepreneurial business person, if you take cheap shots at people, you are about to lose your audience and your friendships. That they don't take. 
Reality, yes. Cheap shots, no. That's definitely quite a unique uh, research method. I, I think I will be trying this out myself. It, it also sounds like a great way of coupling your social life with your work. Um, but now we're going into a section of the podcast that we refer to as Real Talk. So these are the questions that we all want to know the answer to, but are often too afraid to ask. And I'm just going to jump in with the first one. If you could change one thing about society, what would it be? Well, these days, I think the obvious first thing is uh, somehow bringing the world to its senses and how it's addressing this pandemic. I mean, that's it's just it's just an anathema to me how some of the leading, leading the leading countries in the world, the ones most respect, are wreaking havoc upon their population by indecision or political judgments that have nothing to do with public health realities. I just can't understand that. I think that's really the uh, the key thing that's plaguing us today. Um, and our next question for this Real Talk section is, what is an unconventional truth that you believe helped you achieve your success in your life? Let's see here. I guess you could say that's it sort of transcends everything else I do. It's you have to live life according to goals and standards you set for yourself and not by the lure of uh, hierarchical achievements in a pecking order set by others for measuring success. You got to be true to yourself. That's what I think is the key truth. You have to be true to yourself. People say there's a corporate way and there's another way. Well, you can change the corporate way, but you can't change your center, your core. You have a core, you have a center. I really believe this. You have a center. Everyone has a different center. And when you deviate from that, you lose your, you, you lose your soul, you lose yourself. You become something else. You've got, to, you've got to run with the center that you have. And, and it, that's what should guide you, I believe. Did you always have this kind of viewpoint or was it difficult for you? Because as you mentioned in the beginning, you had a lot of different influences giving their input on your choices, like your father, you mentioned a few times. Was it difficult for you at some point to say, okay, I really want to be a writer, so I'm taking the plunge now and leaving this career? Or do you think, was it a gradual process of getting to that point. What I think it was really, my father and my mother were very good people with very good thoughts and, and very talented in their own ways. And they instilled in, in me and my brothers a sense of, of, of value and right and confidence in ourselves. And in that concept of having a center, well, they didn't call it that, but that's what it was. You became centered and focused on what mattered, family mattered to them and, and, and education, being honest, all those things mattered. And I think what happened, and I didn't lose the honest character trait, but I, I think what happened as I went into school and I saw other things, other places, I, I, I was distracted by the bright and shiny object. And I came to think maybe I should do something else. My parents maybe don't know as much as this other person does who seems to have had more success here. And so if anything, I drifted away from my center and for a certain period in life until I, then I, but then I came jolted back to it and I finally came to the conclusion that for me, for my life, it was best to go off and be this writer. And I really made the right decision. And I must say, on book tours, not so much now because people know my story, but it, it, originally, the thing that got the most questions were, how could you have walked away from that job to become a writer? They couldn't believe it. They had, people admire it. I, I, it's not something to admire. It's just the way that I did my life. I didn't develop it. I think I re, I'd rediscovered it. And how, how can people find their center? I'll give you the advice I gave to my children. 
What you do is you decide what it is that you love to do, want to do, care to do, and make sure that it enables you to live the lifestyle that you want to have. If you want to have a private plane, don't go off and become a cleric. If you want to have homes all over the world, don't go off to become an artist or a, or a creative type generally. It's just not going to happen. Choose a career that's going to give you what you think is going to at least allow you to live a, a life. That doesn't mean you have to settle. Far from it. It means decide what you want. I have a friend who, a uh, very talented guy who graduated from college. He went off to become a dentist, moved into a small town. And I went to his birthday. And he had like a lot of kids and even grandkids. And um, he said, you know what? He said, and he became, by the way, he became rather celebrated in his town. He said, this is what counts. These small family, these fall family things, the, the spending time with your kids at night, going to, going off to a game, the awards, the victories, those are just highlights. That's not your life. Your life is what you do every day. As a Wall Street lawyer, I had a, I went to work. I got to work at 10 o'clock in, in the morning. That's late, right? 10 o'clock in the morning, which was when Wall Street firm started. I didn't go home till two in the morning. Almost, I went five years without a vacation. Five years without a vacation. And that's not unusual these days. I had a permanent, I had a permanent night staff secretary coming in at one o'clock in the morning. So that's a life. For many it is. It's the end of the road. There's, there's money and all that. So you have to decide what it is that's going to make you feel that you're living life, you're getting something out of your life, and you're going on. Because as much as I hate to say it, blink. We're, we're less than that in this life, in this earth, in this world. You want to make of it something that's good to you and good to, your, to the people around you. And you can, you can do it making money. You can do it making And I want you to make money. Because that'll make you a happier person so you can live your life. But don't have that be the, be the talisman you follow. Um, and what you said actually about the fact that titles and all of that stuff don't matter, it reminded me of a video that I watched um, of a university in the U.S., uh, a valedictorian speech. And he started saying, he said, I'm so proud to be here. Um, I've worked so many hours. I've read so many books. I've talked to so many teachers. And now I'm here and I'm holding this award and I can give the speech. And all I'm thinking is, is that it? <laughs> and then he kind of had that reflective moment when he said, he realized kind of in that moment that it's really not worth it. The fact that he put so much work into it and he lost so much of his like personal life and the cherished moment with moments with his classmates just to be able to stand there with that award. Um, so yeah, I just, I just thought of that as you were um, telling us. Very perceptive as I've had conversations. When I left Wall Street, I was talking to some, I was very close friends with a lot of the partners in a big Wall Street firm. And they said to me, you made a good decision in leaving because we've found a new way to, to uh, work our new partners, get more hours out of them. I mean, they, they manipulate the mind. You, you, you want to be one of us, you got to do this. You got to work these hours. You got the, the competitive nature. It's all, it's, it's business. It's a business. You want to get productivity and you want to get it out of your assets. And what are the assets in a law firm? Billable hours. And so you are, you are nothing but billable hours for many of the years there. It's the same everywhere. All right. Thank you so much, Jeff. Um, thank you for your real talk. And now we have one more question left in the talk tank. Um, so we ask this all of our speakers um, because we find it quite interesting because this is a question that we ask ourselves while we make the podcast. So if you were in our shoes, who in the world would you like to invite for a podcast interview? And we've actually 
added a special subsection to the question just for you as a writer. So you get the choice of a real or also a fictional character, if you prefer. Oh, a fictional character. Well, I guess you could say this is somewhat of a combination because the person I would interview would require rather unique uh, podcast hookup. Because the person I'd like to interview would probably be my father. And I say that because I'd want him to know how much I appreciated what he said to me were things that actually were true. I may not have realized it at the time. And they came from the right place. And you sort of want to know is what, did he th what does he think about how things all turned out? I mean, he passed away many years ago. What does he think about how things turned out for his, uh, for his children? I'd like to know that. Uh, as far as the fictional character goes, uh, Cormac McCarthy wrote a book. It's called the, the book is Blood Meridian by Cormac McCarthy. And there's a character, the judge. Well, that book, first of all, is just fantastic. It's like, it's hard to read it right straight, straight, right straight through. It's like a very thick, delicious chocolate cake. It's too rich for you to take on one sitting. But he is probably one of the baddest dudes in all of, in all of literature. And, but he's in a character around him. I like the interview from a distance, mind you, because <laughs> he can put you away. Um, but uh, th that would be a fictional character. I'd like to see what makes him really tick because it's an interesting guy. My primary choice would be my father, though. The antithesis of the judge. Yeah, I, I was going to say you've chosen two quite different characters, but sounds like that would make for an interesting interview. It's like my life. <laughs> I don't know where I'm going to be next. All right, Jeff, thank you so, so much for your time. It's been a pleasure talking to you. And please, everyone, check out the latest book uh, of Jeff. He's also bringing out a lot of new stuff. Yeah, tell us, Jeff, just quickly, when is your next book coming out? My next book, which is called... A Deadly Twist comes out April 6th, and it takes place on the island of Naxos, which reminds me very much of what Mykonos was like when I first went there. And now it now confronts the battle between people who are looking to develop tourism and those who want to preserve old ways. Everyone watch out for that release in the next year. And thank you again for your time. It's been a pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in. See you next week. Oh, and don't forget to leave a message after the beep. <laughs>